0: Let me pray for us. Ask God to, to guide and direct our time. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning, uh, the way you've provided and cared for us. Uh, the way that, that we have so much and yet um, we forget. So this time is a time to gather around your word, to listen, to think, to reflect, to, to hear what it is that you want us to see and to think about our lives. We need you to speak directly into our individual circumstances and situations, to take the truth of your word. We need your spirit to operate inside of us, in our hearts and our minds, to open our eyes, to to see what you want us to see. We need each other to encourage and to exhort. And so this time is a time that you've set apart for these reasons. And we're grateful that you have done that for us. And I pray that you would use it in each of our lives. That you would be honored, that we would be transformed, and that the world would understand and see a witness that more accurately and vitally reflects the life of Christ in us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three. Uh, I'm doing kind of a bookend thing on the seven letters to the, these churches. Last week, we looked at the the letter to the church of Ephesus, and this week, we're looking to the letter to the church of of Laodicea. Remember that these are written for the very purpose of encouraging and building up the church to encourage her witness. And so, this morning, we're going to look at this letter to the church of Laodicea. It's the the last one of the seven in this, this section in Revelation. So, let's read this. I'll read this for us. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down on my father's on my on my father and uh, sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we look at this passage, some questions we're going to ask about the state of the church in this case. And we're going to find some things that are going to hit really close to home, that they're clearly and unnervingly similar to the world and the church in which here and in the modern American where we are. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, opens his, this, this, uh, this book with a, with a parable, with a short story. Reminds us a little bit of our condition, the condition of this church, He writes, Recently a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. He depicts that as he describes a situation where a person thought they were in one situation, but indeed they were in exactly the opposite of the other we recognize that it might be one thing for a, our a perception of reality to be off just by a margin or by a hair. It's a different thing for our perception to be 180 degrees from the truth. If our perception is off by a margin and by just a, a little bit, a football player misses a catch, a baseball player misses a hit, you miss an accident by a margin. But if we're 180 degrees from the truth, then we're indeed in deception and indeed. We are in a danger situation. This parable, this story, gives us a picture, I think, and it is a good description of the church of Laodicea that they were deceived in themselves. It describes their condition. It describes ours as well. As we look at this, we're going we're gonna to ask a few questions about their condition. We're going to approach it in some ways as if there's a spiritual disease they have because it's kind of presented in this way. There's something wrong with this church. There's something Wrong, and Christ comes to speak and to heal and to bring his life back into it. We 're asked the question what 's wrong with this church? How could they have fallen so far? So much so that Christ has very little good to say about them. As we look at this we 're going to find that the affluence of this church is a kind of self sufficiency, and in out of that comes this spiritual malaise, this spiritual lethargy. And as a result of that, their understanding of the gospel had become so minimized and their view of themselves had become so elevated and so much so that their witness to a world around them had become virtually non-existent as a result. But quickly to back up in the book of Revelation, I mentioned this, did a little overview last week, but to remind us that this book that's written by John through Jesus' vision he has from Christ, probably the latter part of the first century, its, it's intention was to encourage the church to enable it to stand in the midst of persecution in the midst of temptation to do complacency in the midst of its own temptation to compromise and so it's to encourage them to stand it's not a puzzle but it's rather a picture to look at this section we're looking at is bracketed by two different visions the chapters two and three which are the seven letters to these seven churches in asia minor are bracketed first by the vision of the son of man of christ himself who is present with his church And the reasoning is there. The purpose of him being present with his church is to attend to its light, to its lampstand, and to encourage it and to strengthen its witness in the midst of the challenges that it faces. So we know that Christ is present with them. He's present with us for that very purpose to strengthen our witness to a world around us. The other vision is seen in chapters 4 and 5 that brackets this. It is Christ who is on the throne. That He is in charge is God on the throne, the Father, as He is working out His plan through Christ. That He's ruling and that He's reigning, and the beauty of that is that that's the ultimate reality for the church. That we know He's in charge, no matter the circumstances. And these letters to the seven churches certainly hit various issues that the churches face, and they're as diverse as the situations themselves that they find themselves in. Indeed, each church faces a unique kind of situation in which it needs to work out its own life in the gospel with Christ's words and encouragement as they find themselves there. And so each one hits these different themes that the churches need to hear. There's great zeal, there's great complacency, there's great persecution, there's temptation to compromise. And Christ comes with his word in each case to give them exactly what they need to hear. In this case, for the church of Laodicea, they need to hear his word to be woken up to be woken from their slumber last week we look at the church at ephesus and their zeal for correctness and purity and how their desire to protect the gospel and to keep it pure had actually kept them from understanding the heart of it and it prevented them from truly loving and christ steps in and says you're at risk here of losing your light and so he calls them to remember to repent to engage the world around them as we come to Laodicea, we have a different scenario, a different circumstance of the church. We have one that is important as we look back at this, and each of the settings helps us understand the words that Christ gives. And in this case, we find that the church in Laodicea was a very wealthy church. It was a very affluent church. It was one of the largest and richest commercial centers in the world at the time. It had many strengths that it boasted, but three in particular had to do with the banking and commerce that it produced. The second one has to do with a kind of textiles that it produced. It was very proud of. And then thirdly, there was a medical hospital that was there, a clinic. There was a school that people would come and learn about that. And so there was a fair amount of technology and industry that was present in the city, and they were proud of that. But for all of their strength, they had one glaring weakness as a city, and the glaring weakness of the city was their water supply. And we'll talk about that in a minute because it's important to understand the words of Christ in light of the water supply that they had. That was their the weakness that was there. church was most likely established by Epaphras. And um, as as Paul writes in Colossians, you can read about that. We don't know much else about it except for this letter that we have. And yet as we compare this letter to the seven other letters in Revelation chapter two and three, we find this is by far the most severe letter of, of all the seven. I mentioned last week that there's kind of an order, there's a form that each of the letters have. And it begins with an introduction and kind of looking at the character of Christ that identifies a commendation, something that they're doing well moves on to a rebuke. In this case, the church, the commendation is skipped altogether. It's like Christ says, I don't really have anything good to say about you. So I'm diving right into the rebuke. And so there's no commendation. There's only a condemnation here for their lack of zeal. And so it is clear what's happening here, that there's something very wrong with the church. And what I want to do is I think about this, as we look at this, I want to think about it again in terms of, of a spiritual disease. It's something that's set in for them that has been affected and produced by their affluence, by the culture in which they live, their dependence upon themselves. we to look at the presenting issue, kind of the diagnosis. We want to look at some of the symptoms that are present in a church that suffers from this. We're going to find some similarities as we work through that. As well, we want to look at the real issue, not just the symptoms, but what's really below the surface, what's the core issue of the church that is sapping its spiritual life and then finally treatment. What is it that Christ is going to do and say to this church, how is it that we can hear and understand what he says and apply those same things in our lives? So first of all, diagnosing disease, what, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them that Christ would have virtually nothing good to say? What is the presenting issue? And we see here in verses 15 and 16, it has to do with their temperature. It has to do with the temperature of the church. And this language, even as you read this, this hot and cold language, Jesus says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Or cold nor hot. I always get the order wrong here. But what? But that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So It has something to do with their temperature. And this ties back into the weakness I mentioned earlier of their water supply. That what Jesus is doing, he's taking a metaphor for them, something that they understand that's a weakness in their own city. And he then identifies that, this vital weakness of the strength, and he ties it to their weakness as a church. And we think about that. This city that had so much going on, so much strength and so many things to boast that the water supply would be so poor, they would be so bad, so much so that it would be nauseating to people. Virtually it would be repulsive to them. And Jesus applies that picture to them as he looks at this water supply, this source of physical life for them. The hot and cold can be understood through the lens. They would understand that there were two cities close by there's a city close by that produced had the hot springs and so for them the hot water that he's referring to this hotness is is referred to this this city close by with the hot springs and with that there's a kind of medicinal or healthful healthful properties as a result the other there's a city close by that had a mountain range and there were streams that produced cold water and you can get the picture right Hot waters are good. The cold waters are good. One has a kind of medicinal, healthful properties. The other one has this kind of refreshing. One would bring healing. The other one would bring refreshment to those who are indeed tired, for those who need to be encouraged. And and so that's the picture here, both of these these resources that are close by. But instead of refreshing water, instead of healing water, the city it offered was a tepid, mineral-filled water, and if you think about the person that the the person who would visit there and would drink their water, expecting to have water that would taste good or would produce some sort of good response, instead it would be pulsive. And when Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of your mouth my mouth, it's it's a picture of the same response that someone would have in kind of surprise as unknowingly to take a drink of this water that this city produces. And Jesus says, As I taste the spiritual water of your church, this is the same kind of response. And the language is strong. It's a, it's a clear response. It's not just a spit. It, it, the word is literally a vomit. To, to, to get rid of it. To, again, a variety of words. You can come up with the words. You know what they are. To get rid of that. My kids at this point thought it would be a good idea if I had a drink of water. And I would spew it out onto all of you. But I decided against that. But, but you get the picture. That there's a strong response of Christ as he tastes the spiritual Lukewarmness and the tepid and repulsive nature as he looks at their own lives. And the me- metaphor helps us understand it a little more clearly. Sometimes this is taken to be understood that, that you're hot or cold, that the hot being spiritual fervor, cold being either get in or get out. And I don't think that's what's being communicated here. I think what's being communicated is that the position you don't want to be in is having no temperature at all. What you don't want to be is having complete lukewarmness or this tepid um, temperature of your spiritual life. And that's the way we will take that and understand that, that this lukewarmness, instead of drawing people to it, actually repels people tepid lukewarm spirituality lacks any witness at all and you think about it again what christ wants to do is produce a witness in his church what we happen here is not it's not just the absence of a witness we have the opposite of a witness we have a church that what they produce as people come into their presence what they have is is repulsive to them and christ says that this is what's happening it's repulsive to me it's repulsive to the other the gospel is not present here in and of your church lacking the zeal for the gospel Christ sees their complacency. He sees their indifference. And he says there's nothing here of real value. And you see the contrast, right? The water that Jesus offers, the water that the gospel offers is refreshing. It actually draws people to it. When they realize who he is and what he offers, he draws them as opposed to repelling them. And so this is a picture of their presenting issue. There is no temperature whatsoever. And we see that Christ says that your condition is such that I want to spit you out of my mouth. Instead of them being nauseated, he said, I am. But he wants to encourage them. He doesn't end with that. And so we see their disease is real. It's a lack of temperature. But what are some of the symptoms that are there? And how can a church get to this point where they're so spiritually non-responsive? They can become so spiritually dead in this respect. Well, there's a few characteristics, I think, that are helpful for us to understand uh, what's taking place is hot or cold is to be understand This lukewarmness, and if you were a physician and you were diagnosing somebody and you were looking for symptoms, here's a few of the symptoms that this church seems to exhibit that help you understand and figure out what's wrong with them. It seems there, there was a lethargic response, that there was complacency in their, their understanding of the gospel. There was indifference as to the call of Christ in their lives. There was a passivity they were not interested in doing anything that would be required by the gospel but to do essentially serve their own purposes there's a kind of laziness that is that grows out of this and a pursuit of comfort that is grown up in this setting as well and so this lackadaisical, this lazy spirituality Christ speaks into and says I'm not going to allow it he says in verse 17 says this is true of you verse 17 He says, this is what you say, that your impression, your perception of yourself is, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And he goes on to say, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see what had happened is that their condition was a result of their own self-dependence, their own self-sufficiency. You say, I am rich. You say, I prospered. Indeed, you look around, you say, I've got everything I need, so I don't need anything else. And that created a lens as they saw Christ, as they saw his gospel, a lens that would make that unnecessary and superfluous. And so their own self-sufficiency affected the way they saw the offer of the gospel, the way they saw the need for it. Indeed, their only lens was their own wealth, their own prosperity, their own technology, their own developments that their community had in which they boasted. And it cultivated a pridefulness about themselves, that they were much more adequate than they really should have thought themselves to be, that there was a comfort that they would pursue, and the comfort become the ultimate goal. And in the end, they would say, I need absolutely nothing. And you realize that the perception of the truth is 180 degrees from that. That the perception of reality was, was opposite of what was actually true. And, of course, we know that the danger of affluence, the danger of this, is that it causes us to depend upon ourselves. Dennis Johnson, one of the commentators on this, makes this, he mentions this in relating to this church. He says, What Jesus finds nauseating in the church's superficial, is the church's superficial complacency, Resting on the delusion that fiscal affluence will insulate it from need. Let me read that again. What Jesus finds nauseating is the church's superficial complacency resting on the delusion that fiscal affluence will insulate it from need, thinking that its own abilities, its physical fiscal financial position will insulate it from need. And he goes on to say, Laodicea is hallucinations of wealth are symptoms of a potentially terminal affluenza. You see he uses a term there that kind of melds the two together. It's a term that's been coined over the last couple decades in our culture that combines affluence and materialism and consumerism with a kind of malady or disease that affects people and places and societies. Their symptoms of complacency, of lethargy, stemmed from their own self-sufficiency, their own preoccupation with themselves, and it would characterize them. And all of us sitting here today can know it characterizes us, and we experience the same kinds of effects of affluence and much that is given to us. And this term of affluenza is a great descriptor of what happens in a society. And the description, uh, def- definition that's given for this is that affluenza is an array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and children by the possession of great wealth, an unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. That's just a description of, of what happens to people, what happens to society when they have too much. Because what we have can never be enough. And, and there's real effects emotionally and relationally and psychologically on people. And my point today is not to, to go after the affluence for society somehow to try to say that's, that's a bad thing. It's a gift of God, but it does have its effects on us. I think what's more important to go dig a little bit deeper, there are real effects on us emotionally and relationally in our society as a result of the affluence of the the wealth that we have, the abundance that we have. But even more importantly, there are spiritual effects. There are spiritual symptoms that go even deeper than these emotional, relational ones of isolation and boredom and those kinds of things. And the spiritual symptom is this. It's simply, with all the affluence, with all we have, with technology and the some sort of way, what happens is we end up depending upon it. We depend on what we have. We depend upon what our culture offers us. And we think that in and through what it has, through our abilities and through what is provided for us in there, that, that we can become sufficient, that we can be self-dependent ultimately. And what happens is this idea is, is cultivated that we can be self-reliant and self-sufficient And what that does is we impose it now. We look at Christ through this lens of our own self-sufficiency. And we say, well, I don't need what He offers. It affects and diminishes the things that Christ offers in the spiritual realm. And and indeed what it does is it takes what He offers and makes them unnecessary for us. It makes them superfluous. It makes them unnecessary and, and, and just kind of maybe nice. And so for them... For us, through the lens of our own abilities, through the lens of our own sufficiency, lens of our own sufficiency, what happens is we think, well, maybe Christ, or it's, it's helpful here or there. But as I look at the whole of my life, only partially true because I've got so much. And their language when they say, I need nothing, tells us a lot about them. And those situations where we might feel the same way tells us a lot about ourselves because it's exactly the opposite from what's true that their perception of reality was 180 degrees from the truth. And Christ said, that's not just deceptive, it's actually dangerous. It's dangerous to you, it's dangerous to the world around you. And so this tells us the real situation has to do with their self-sufficiency and dependence upon that. You see, if they really saw that the money that they had, or the clothing they had, or the technology that they had, was really worthless in the sight of God in that respect, it really had no value in that respect. And really what they most needed is what Christ offers. What would happen was would be a complete shift and turnaround. Their eyes would be opened and they would their, their lives would be spiritually vital. Because they wouldn't be running after those things. They would be running after the things of Christ. And so as Christ speaks to them, he speaks in their lives to, to help them understand the real situation. There's no temperature in their life. They're, they're spiritually Virtually dead. They're complacent. We see that it's a result of their own self sufficiency, depends upon that. The fact of the matter is that they're blind. They can't even see themselves. In verse 17, the last half of it, he says, You don't even realize your true condition. You don't realize what's really true that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't realize what's really true of you. What's really true isn't that you're rich and you have lots of money or you have these things. What's really most true of you is not what you think or anybody else thinks of you. It's what Christ thinks of you. It's what He sees you. And He says, I want you to see how I see you. In your self-dependence, this is what's true. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You think that you're acceptable. You think that you're respectable. But indeed, you need mercy. You need someone to show you mercy. You think that you're financially dependent, independent. But the fact is, you're poor. The fact of the matter is, you are dependent, upon the spiritual riches that somebody else will provide. You think that you are clothed but the fact of the matter that you're actually naked, that you're exposed. And you think that you can see, but you are really blind to what's true. They didn't see this. Their own affluence had reduced their witness. Their affluence had produced this lens that prevented them from seeing the needs that they had of the way Christ saw them. We find the same effects upon us, we swim in a water of affluence. We swim in a water that says you can have what you want. And that's what we think. And in that water, in this affluence, grows these same kinds of ideas of self-sufficiency, of autonomy, of satisfaction that comes from things that we can produce ourselves. And our condition is very similar to, you, to, uh, to theirs. And what happens is the spiritual life literally gets drained from us. David Wells, in, in a book called God in the Wastelands, uses a term that, that's been helpful for me in telling. a chapter in his book, as he kind of addresses the effects of the modern world, again, all these things, the, all the isms, the individualism and consumerism, materialism, affluence on, the, uh, on this modern world, he says that God has become weightless. And the chapter is called The Weightlessness of God as he explains or describes the effects of these things in the church, that God becomes unimportant, that all these other things become important. We see there that the very one who should rest upon his people and have the most weight, the most importance, the most significance on us, actually what happens becomes much less important to what others would think or what other we can provide or take care of ourselves. And so this is the situation of a church. With this virus, there's no temperature is a reality that they have become self-sufficient and the spiritual life is drained out of the church. They're neither hot nor cold. And the fact is they can't even see what's true of themselves. And so Christ, by his grace, comes in and says, I want you to see what's true. I want you to open your eyes so you see really what's true of you. And so the question for us is what's the treatment? And how is it that we as a church... How is it that we as people, as individuals walking with Christ can swim in this water of our culture with all these effects without them taking over us? How can we swim with having much? How many of you got at least 100 emails over the last few days for Black Friday? How many of you have struggled with those kinds of things, of finding life in those things? And we know that we struggle with that, that it's a real situation in which we find ourselves. And so Christ gives Treatment, he helps us understand how to respond. He tells them some th- words that we can have for us as well. Four things I want to mention I think that we can draw out of this and apply to them, and apply to our lives. But first, we understand that it's nothing short of Christ's work Himself can enable us to stand in the midst of this culture, that we don't have what it takes, that He will enable us to do that. He will wake us and be the only one that can really wake us from. Or slumber from this complacent life that we easily slip into. The first thing I think we can see here is that we need to acknowledge our need that Christ, of what only Christ can provide. We need to acknowledge our need of what only Christ can provide. In verse 18, after he says, see yourself, the way you see yourself is you don't need anything, but the reality is your wretched pity will pour blind and naked. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of the nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And you see what he says. He says I want you to come. I want you to buy from me. Come and buy from my store. And the language is so helpful. It says, I counsel you. It's, it's the great physician coming and saying, look at your life. Look at how you're living. I want you to see really what's really true of your spiritual condition. He says, he's not commanding them. He's saying, I'm counseling you. Take a look at this and then come. And this is where you buy. And this is what you buy. So as he comes to them, he wants them to to respond. So he counsels them to respond. He wants them to see the emptiness of what they have in light of what Christ offers. And as they see the emptiness of what they have, they'll be able then to see the value of what Christ offers. And he wants them to come and buy at his store. The call to worship I mentioned earlier or read earlier from Isaiah 55 says, come you without money, come by without cost. And there's a provision that Christ offers of food and drink there in that passage. And it's the same offer. And it's only as we see our money and the things that we have as kind of a monopoly money that it has no real value at all when we come to Christ. And as we come with that lens understanding, we'll see that, oh, what he has has real value. And he says, come buy this. Come buy gold refined by the fire. Buy, have real spiritual riches that I will offer you that will not fade. He says, white garments to cover yourself, to cover the nakedness and shame that's that of yourselves. And we think about there, about the way that they would cover themselves uh, would be with their own clothing. And again, something that they prided themselves in. He says, you can't cover yourselves like that. And he says, salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. And what's interesting, again, with each of these, the riches and the clothing and the salve, the eye salve, in the background of this is a real situation of real people who took pride in their riches, who took pride in their clothing, who took pride in their ability to treat eyesight in this way. And what Christ says, he says, none of these things will really help you. None of the strengths that you think you have will really found to be strength. And so that's exactly what needed to happen. They need to recognize that he is the only one that could truly meet. their And he would provide these things. Nothing of what they had could do that. So firstly, you need to see that the prerequisite to buying from him is to understand that they don't have anything to purchase with. That what they have is a monopoly money to buy from his store. And he says that's not going to work. Only... Those who come and recognize that they don't have anything can buy from this. And he says, I'll provide this for you at that cost. That's the first treatment for us to recognize the need of the gospel that he's provided, that which we can't provide ourselves as much as we might try. Secondly, there's a, he commands them to be zealous. In verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He says, so be zealous. First, he counsels them by this. Secondly, he commands them, be zealous. How do you command somebody to be zealous, to be fervent in this respect? Well, I think as a person understands indeed what they don't have, as they begin to see their true situation, their true reality apart from Christ, and they understand what he offers, what happens now all of a sudden is the gospel becomes something that's desirable. The gospel and Christ and what he offers becomes something that they will be zealous about because they recognize and understand the need that is there. And so as they see that, there will be a zeal that flows out of this, a fervency, a new life that's poured into their spiritual life as they see their need for Christ. And that's exactly what happens. That as we see our need for him, all of a sudden we become alive spiritually in that respect. As he fills us and encourages us. And the fact is, we are zealous people. There are things that we get excited about. And oftentimes, though, we exchange excitement for good things for other things. And so we want to be careful and ask the question, what is it I get excited about? Am I truly excited about the gospel? Do I have eyes to see what Christ has provided for me? And if not, to ask him to give us eyes to see what he has done. And so there's a command here to be zealous. And as their eyes are opened, they will. Thirdly, there's a command to repent. And so for us, for them, there's a repentance. There's a turning away from something as well. There's a practical term, something needs to happen. If zeal has to do with the heart, and loving something, this has to do with the hands and the actions and the way they would repent and turn from. But what is there to turn from and what is there to turn to? And the same question for us. I think they and we are to repent of the ways that we subtly or overtly think. Like they thought, I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing at all. Those seasons in our life where we think we're coasting. We think, you know what, I don't need anything at all. And those I've got what I need or I'll be satisfied with these things or if I don't have it, I can just go buy it or I find my sufficiency to be something that I can produce or the culture around me can produce. We repent of that kind of thinking. We repent of our pride and we think better of ourselves than we ought or we look down on other people because of what we have materially. We subtly fall into those kinds of thinking or to think that somehow there is a blessing when maybe there isn't. Maybe our possessions themselves bring a kind of poverty and a curse upon us. There's a temptation towards materialism, a living for and finding life in the material world around us. And of course, we know what that means, what that feels like to fight against that, to live with the necessities at the same time to realize, as Jesus said, that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, material possessions. And so we turn from these things, we turn towards the things that are in God's heart. And so there's a Repenting that goes on over the course of our lives, being willing to confess all these things and say, Lord, will you rescue me from these in the way that they will sap my spiritual life from me? And to cultivate disciplines of contentment, of gratitude, generosity, simplicity in our lives. So we repent. We, We acknowledge our need for the gospel. We ask him to make us zealous, to change our heart as we see what he's done for us. We are Thirdly, there's a repentance. We turn from and turn to, turn towards him, and that will help treat and deal with this. And then finally, what do we do as a church? How do we deal with this scenario in which we live, this water that we swim in that can sap our spiritual life by causing us or tempting us to believe in ourselves or to, to uh, become self-sufficient? Well, the last one, uh, point I want to make is in verse 20. Uh, verse 20 uh, after he calls them to be zealous and repent, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. A verse that's used quite often, a variety of different kind of approaches to it. I have a, an approach I want us to see, I think, that's there. What we have is Jesus and his grace and his kindness. Although he's very clear in his rebuke of them, that, that the knocking is a picture of his kindness to them to wake them up, that what we have here is a call to, to wake up, to, to be ready for his return, to be ready for his involvement and in, in entrance into our lives and to anticipate his return. That there's an act of mercy, says, I'm coming to you. And there's a passage in Luke chapter 12, you'll turn with me to, to that, that helps, I think, inform for us what's going on here in the knocking. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. This message, of course, is going to to those who are his. Those who have in some point in time professed to be his followers, but over the course of time, the, the zeal and temperature of their spiritual life has fallen so much so that you might wonder if indeed they are, But they are his. That's why he's speaking to them, to get them to respond. Luke chapter 12, 35 to 37. Jesus says this, and you'll see the similarities. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That is, the master will come and serve them. And you see the similarities. As the master returns, the call here is to wait his knocking, to wait for him to return and to come and to be ready for him and to anticipate his return as he comes. It is blessed of those servants who are ready. When he does return and Jesus is saying here as I enter your life as I'm here I'm knocking it's his entrance into the life of the church to say Don't forget. I'm here. I'm at work in your life even now And it certainly looks down the road to the point at time in which he will return But it also and primarily alludes to this situation in which he is speaking to them These words he says I am knocking as you hear these words That my desire is to enter your life and that this picture of Eating is a picture of fellowship. It's a fellowship with Christ. And it's a table, it's a meal, as the Luke passage says, that he is going to serve, that he is going to provide. It's a picture of true understanding of the gospel. It's a true understanding of what it is that he provides. And so the call to us, the call to the church that lives in this setting is to be ready, and to anticipate his return, to anticipate his entrance and his work in our lives. And to look forward to the fellowship that we will have with him, to listen for his knock. And here's the deal it does look down the road to when he will return ultimately at the end of the age. But the beauty of this, even as he speaks into this church right now, he speaks into our church, into our lives. And by his grace, he will never allow the state of affairs to go on for too long. He will never allow us to live self sufficient self-dependent, autonomous lives for too long. And those things that we depend on, those things that we run to, that we find our sufficiency is, guess what he's going to do to those things in the course of time? He will remove them from our grasp or he will reveal them to be the things that no longer satisfy. And he steps into our lives. He steps into our worlds and the things that we prop our lives on, he will kick them out and we'll find ourselves in the ground only to find where is it that I turn. Only to find that those things I depended on were not dependable. Those things that I thought would bring, that would be sufficient, are not sufficient. And he reminds us of our need for him. And he calls us back to him. And so he steps into our world. And he knocks on our lives, in and through the circumstances of our world. And he says, I'm here. And I want you to remember, I want you to know that nothing else will be sufficient. Only what I provide for you will be and as you're dependent upon me, what's going to happen is you're going to find your spiritual life and vitality will be brought back. That this water that's depicted that he will spit out, he says, I'm about to, but I haven't yet, it means there's still a period of time. He says, what I'm going to do now is breathe spiritual life into you. And so as we understand this condition and we sense the seeds of this temperaturelessness in our lives, this this complacency we say lord help me to see the ways and the areas i'm trying to rely on myself help me to see those areas and we repent of those we say help me to understand what you have provided alone that i need to depend on and i need to say lord help me to be ready for your work and your operation in my life because what we most need and what christ wants to do in us as we see sufficient is that as we live that out there will be a witness to the world that can see Dependence upon Christ. We'll see what spiritual life is like. Well, this water that's repulsive and tepid and lukewarm will be transformed into something that truly satisfies. That we will enjoy as a church. That others will taste as well. And that's what Christ's desire is for us. And He will work that out in our lives as we trust Him. As we depend upon Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Uh, we, We do swim in this water. We suffer from this illness, but it's not terminal. It will not take us because you've promised by your grace and your power to speak into our lives. And that's our prayer this morning, Father. Would you wake us up? Would you make us ready? Would you remind us of the beauty of your gospel today? Would you help us to see how insufficient the resources that we have? and Help to shift our perception to see how you see us and that we would buy from your store. Would you do that in our lives today so that the witness of our lives, the light and the water that flows through and out of our lives would would flow into the lives of others and it would draw them to you, that it would strengthen them, it would cause others to desire the same thing and that they would find again the beauty of your gospel. As a church, we need you to do this on an ongoing basis. Would you please do that? And we pray also that many other needs, things going on in the life of our church. Father, I pray for uh, Kathy Nace and her family and for Catherine Ritter with the passing of each losing their um, parent this last week. Would you uh, comfort them? Would you encourage them? Would you bring others around them to strengthen them? Father, I, I think of Isaac and Katie McPheeters now after the their wedding yesterday and the, the new life that has has begun um, in them together. And I pray that you would strengthen them and you would bless their marriage. Bless us as a church, cause us to be zealous and, and committed to your gospel and to be diligent and ready for you to be at work. And, and Father, I pray for many missionaries that we get a chance to send out and I pray that you would strengthen them. Think of Marcus and Shannon Brooks, and who will be here next week in their ministry with Brad Supple in the Jesus film, that you would use them to take this life-giving water to those who need it around the world. And I pray for Jeff and Rebecca Burgess as I think of them in, in Greece, that you would be with their family and protect them and use them to be light there in that place. And Lauren Kish, as she prepares to go and return to Rome, provide continue to meet her financial needs and spiritual needs as she returns to there to be your light for them father thanks for the promise and the hope that we have that we will one day eat and enjoy the marriage supper of the lamb with you and in your presence see things more clearly worship you eternally in jesus name we pray amen ask you to stand for the benediction remind you as well uh after each of the service there our elders up front over here, that if you would like to be prayed for, uh, would, would be glad to pray with, with you. Receive this as God's benediction. He who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore.